0: Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast covering your favorite crew featuring Peter and David Goh.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode eight of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. David and I are very excited today to cover some actual baseball that has happened. The MLB offseason is officially over Uh, Definitely a long one in that. But really don't have too much to say here. Uh, One thing I do want to mention is I apologize if it's a little noisy in the background. We are recording this Sunday night after the Brewers' final game against the Cubs. And we have uh, some thunderstorms going on behind us. So apologize if there's any loud noises behind us. Um, But just do what we can to record the podcast.
0: Yeah, I was thinking maybe we might see Mike Trout reporting on the weather behind us. He has been known to call in during storms. I don't know if you knew that. No, he's he's a, a weather meteorology aficionado. So, like, there was, like, this huge storm in New Jersey one time last year. And they said, we're out here with a – they acted like it was a random person. But it was really Mike Trout out in the middle of the storm reporting on the – the storm the they, severity they, of it so they didn't say who it was i'm not sure i think i think afterwards they revealed that it was mike trout is, but
1: that's kind of a there's a fun fact about mike trout that probably most people were not aware of so there we go there's a your random tidbit there's probably be more from david yeah. coming up in this episode but anyways mike trout likes the weather so that's now we now know that anyways uh before we get into it uh we had a quick trivia question for today we'll be given the answer at the end of the pot so make sure to stay tuned for that What Brewers player has the highest single-season defensive war? So get your uh, minds going on thinking about who that could be. We'll reveal who that is at the end. So let's jump into the Brewers' first series against the Chicago Cubs. Game one, the Brewers fell to the Cubs
0: 3-0.
1: Kyle Hendricks threw an absolute gem, a complete game, three-hit shutout. Really stifled the Brewers' offense, Um, and Hendricks just quite frankly dominated the whole game. Uh, Brewers pitching staff, didn't pitch too poorly. Woodruff's stuff looked pretty good. Maybe not a great outing from Woodruff, but um, looked good, Uh, and obviously the Brewers themselves only gave up five hits and three runs as well, but like I said, Hendricks really stifled the Brewers' offense. Um, What were your thoughts after the first game?
0: Yeah, overall it was a little bit confusing to say the least, that Arcia went three for three, nobody else reaching base during the course of the game. So of course that's not not something that you would expect to see really in any game. Hendricks' changeup did look good. Even uh, some of the broadcasters were quite impressed with his changeup, both in the movement and the location, and some of the swings that he was getting off of it. I don't think that it was necessarily a game that the Brewer fans should be concerned about. But nonetheless, it was a little bit frustrating to watch, especially with all the anticipation of finally being able to watch the Brewers play a live baseball game.
1: Right. And the Cubs obviously getting the benefit of Hendricks going nine innings, not having their bullpen touched while the Brewers ended up uh, with five arms pitching in the game. Mm-hmm. And we did get to see, um, like I said, a handful of arms, including uh, J.P. Eisen which was a uh, to see him debut for the brewers as well as Canable, wall claudio and like i mentioned woodruff who got the start any of those guys stick out to you in, in their appearances in the first game
0: mm-hmm. yeah well fire Eisen actually is the 10th wisconsin native to pitch for the brewers excuse me to play for the brewers with the previous being Vinny rotino <laughs> brewers legend
1: I, all i remember is that one walk off yeah have, yeah against uh, the padres right i, I think it's so, up i think well he
0: was- did he tie it
1: now we got to look that up later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to, yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah, we'll have to look that up later. If yeah. anyone knows, let us know. Yeah, because I
0: know there's a Tony Gwynn Jr. triple. That's right, I do remember that. And then, uh, was it? Yeah, I think I think he might have tied it. Maybe walk off. Either way, Vinny Rochino was the last Wisconsin native to play for the Brewers before FireEyeson. UW-Stevens Point alum also. So good for the sport of baseball in Wisconsin. We've seen that kind of trending upwards a little bit in the more recent years so jp fireisen making his debut there he kind of stood out he did allow a home run to anthony rizzo in his appearance however still overall solid showing in his first big league appearance
1: yeah and we also saw corey Knebel come back uh familiar face but good to see Knebel back on the bump we'll see what kind of innings the brewers give him um obviously it wasn't a, a you know brewers were already down in that game not a high pressure situation, and then we saw him later in the series as well in a lower pressure situation. So we'll see how long Council decides to leave him in those situations and at what point they slide him into the traditional closer role that we expect to see Knable play this year. And like you mentioned, Arcia going three for three. I don't know necessarily that Arcia looked great. He did have some hard hit Mm -hmm. balls. um, but like you said, only hits from the Brewers came from Orlando Arcia. I'm not sure if that's ever happened or ever will happen again. Yeah. Uh, but Arcea going three for three, having a nice day against um, against Hendricks. Uh, but again, not too much uh, from Brewers fans in game one. It was definitely disappointing with a long anticipation um, that the Brewers fans had going into opening day. Game two was a bit of a flip of the script from game one, with the Brewers beating up on the Cubs eight to three. We saw a matchup of Corbin Burns and Hugh Darvish who both seemed to struggle with command uh, in their starts. Your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it seemed like they were both kind of fighting against themselves more so than they were against the other team. Burns struggled with his command in that he, he hit Baez. Baez did not like that. He clearly took exception to it. Came up and in on Contreras. Contreras... Check swung and fouled one ball off and then stared down Burns as if Burns intentionally threw it there
1: which right was which was a I think a 95 mile an hour two-seamer that started as a strike and ran in on Contreras yeah which he swung at exactly so I'm not really sure what Contreras was getting upset about but yeah definitely saw Baez get upset and words were definitely exchanged it was interesting to hear Mm -hmm. from Craig Council during the game very briefly talked with the announcers about how without the fans there both teams can clearly hear the benches the umpires can hear the players so maybe we'll see a little bit more of that um maybe the uh manual that mlb sent out (laughs) outlawing fights will stop all the teams from fighting yeah but anyways it was interesting to see in that brewer's cubs rivalry that we've seen over the last couple of years it's, it's been heightened with both teams being very competitive and like you said burns Uh, Did struggle, really was competing against himself mainly. Three and a third innings, only gave up two hits, but three walks, six strikeouts from Burns. And like I mentioned, Burns' stuff looked good, um, but definitely did struggle with the command. Overall, there wasn't a a whole lot to see from uh, Burns or Darvish. Both teams going deep into their bullpen. Uh, The Brewers' offense coming alive in the middle to late innings of the game.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also one thing to mention, but the broadcasters were terrible for the game. <laughs> I'm not—I don't even remember who the broadcasters were. But I was watching Avi Garcia comes up. Yeah, the, the Brewers acquired Avi Garcia from the White Sox, and he will be platooning behind the plate with Manny Pena. <laughs> Clearly not the case. And then there were oh yeah, they, they went to a game break with the Dodgers Giants, and the announcer just pauses and says, "Yeah, the, the Dodgers are very good, and the Giants are not." <laughs> groundbreaking that's analysis getting, that's what they're
1: getting paid the big bucks for yeah
0: exactly. yeah also the the automated fans were interesting on fox i don't know some of our fans that are listening might have watched the game and seen those personally they're they're okay i i don't really think they add anything i don't right. really think I'm, we I'm lose anything to them
1: but i will say when they're zoomed out far enough yeah you don't really notice that they're <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it
0: feels like uh feels like uh some old, like 2000 sports video games, kind of thing. MVP baseball. So yeah.
1: Me back to, I mean, actually, those were way better yeah. than MVP baseball. Yeah,
0: maybe back. like 2K, the 2K series, MLB 2K series. That right. that would be kind of the. The, the vibe that you got. Yeah. yeah. The quality yeah. of automated fans. Yeah.
1: Anyways, uh, moving on from the automated Yeah. Fans, Lorenzo Kane did have himself a good game going three for four with two runs. Justin Smoke as well, two for five. Uh, but the Brewers, well rounded attack on the offensive side putting up eight runs against the Cub and taking game two. Game three, we had the matchup of Tyler Chatwood and Freddie Peralta. Interesting to see Peralta get a start after he was announced to join the Brewers rotation a couple weeks ago. And the Cubs took this one 9-1. Um, Peralta definitely struggled going three innings, giving up four runs, two walks. Um, and again, Peralta struggling in the first inning and the fourth inning.
0: He did get through the first inning without really any damage, but then... He allowed one in the second and four in the fourth which was really the big inning. Three of those runs in the fourth inning were charged to him with one being Canable. Canable really got hit hard coming in for Freddy Peralta so that certainly did not help the struggles that Freddy Peralta already did experience in that fourth inning there against the Cubs lineup. I do think that Freddy Peralta's stuff looked pretty good. He was making okay pitches. Overall I'd say there were some encouraging things in that his stuff was working well Kind of looked like the Freddy Peralta that we know. Electric arm, electric fastball. A lot of swings and misses on that fastball, but struggling with some command.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of leash Peralta gets in the rotation. I know there were talks about him being a swingman out of the bullpen. We even covered that a little bit in our bullpen episode. So it will be interesting to see how long the Brewers give him in the rotation if he continues to perform as he
0: did in Game 2. Yeah, and I I do think that Freddy Peralta may be more suited long-term. As a member of the bullpen, I do think that the Brewers will give him any and every chance that he can get to be a member of the rotation, but certainly they've given him plenty of opportunities, and he's been an okay starter, kind of a a passable starter, but not necessarily a guy that you would want to give a lot of starts to and he could be a guy who could really be a either a great back-end lockdown reliever or a very good middle innings guy who will give you two plus innings at a time right definitely
1: his value has been shown in the bullpen so it will be interesting to see how the brewers play Peralta you mentioned Knable getting beat up in after Peralta Uh, Eric Lauer then came in for his brewers debut and he actually really shined going two and two thirds six strikeouts really commanded the ball really well not typically a strikeout pitcher, but we did see a very good performance from Lauer.
0: Yeah, really it seemed like everything was working well for him. His command was on, his velo was a little bit higher than it normally would be in the rotation, which is definitely not a surprise, considering that when you're throwing a lower amount of pitches, you're able to throw at a higher intensity. But his cutter was working, his fastball was working, his breaking ball was working, and when you can command three pitches, especially as a reliever, you're going to be pretty successful like he was today.
1: Wall and Grimm both came in for an inning in the seventh and eighth. Wall gave up a home run to Contreras. Uh, Grimm given up two home runs, one to Ian Happ and one to Anthony Rizzo. Uh, but both debuts for them this year. And Tyler Chatwood really threw a good game for the Cubs again. Again, we saw Hendricks dominate in game one. Chatwood looked really good going six hittings for the Cubs, keeping the Brewers offense off balance. And the Brewers were limited to only three hits again uh, here in game three.
0: Game three, the offense seemed kind of similar to how it was in game one. Of course, Chatwood not being the caliber of pitcher that Hendricks may be, but Chatwood did look really good, and I think he'll be a big X factor for the Cubs this year, especially with Quintana out to begin the year. They have they have not much depth beyond the guys like Lester, Hendricks, and Yu Darvish.
1: Right, Chatwood is really important to them. Like you mentioned, Cubs have probably the least depth in the division as far as the four front runners in the rotation and I think that Chatwood's performance will be really important to the Cubs' success. So the Brewers dropping two out of three from the Chicago Cubs and the NL Central standings looking as the Cubs and Cardinals at the top both going two and one with the Reds, Brewers and Pirates in the bottom going one and two. And our first takeaway from the series like we mentioned, Eric Lauer uh, was definitely a bright spot that we saw in game two going two and two-thirds innings. What can we expect from Lauer going forward?
0: I think a solid four-starter type. I do think that Lauer will join the rotation at some point. Freddy Peralta does not seem like he'll be there to stay long-term, and they're already lined up kind of in that same spot. Once Lauer is stretched out, I do think that Lauer will be regaining his rotation spot with potentially Freddy Peralta moving to the bullpen.
1: And there are a couple options, too. Burns, of course, didn't look great. I would think that they'll probably give Burns maybe a little bit longer of a chance in the rotation than Freddy Peralta, so Peralta would likely be the one to uh, move to the bullpen if one lauer is ready, uh, but they do have other options as well if Peralta is able to turn it around. Another takeaway from the series was the Brewers' stuff. Uh, the pitchers didn't necessarily perform great, obviously giving up a lot of runs in games one and three, but uh, definitely saw a lot of big arms, good stuff overall. Uh, it'll be obviously seen as we progress through the season whether this correlates with wins, but definitely big arms coming out of the bullpen. Um, looking good overall.
0: Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. Bobby Wall was certainly one guy that I thought looked very good outside of Lauer, like we mentioned before. Wall, with that good fastball curveball combination, does mix in a slider occasionally. And then some other guys like Woodruff, of course, being from the starting rotation. He's a guy who's got great stuff, and that's not something that's necessarily news.
1: Yeah, Woodruff's stuff looked good in Game 1. John Smoltz even mentioning that Woodruff is his Cy Young pick for 2020 and will be Definitely excited to see what kind of season Woodruff can put up.
0: Yeah, and the third takeaway that I I really drew out from the series was not necessarily about the Brewers, but the Cubs, and they're still a dangerous team. Last year, they underperformed, especially in the second half. They are kind of falling off out of the playoff picture, but they do still have a very good top of the order. Maybe not the modern-day murderer's row, like the announcer said on Saturday, but they do still have Bryant, Rizzo, Baez, Schwarber, at the top four spots in the order with Contreras and some guys behind who will help those top four and they've got a good starting rotation with with some okay guys in the bullpen I do think that especially the Cubs need to stay healthy more so than any other team if they do want to contend and I think overall for the NL Central the expanded playoff format will help for more NL Central teams to make the postseason
1: absolutely agree with that Yeah, the increased playoff teams definitely will favor the NL Central among the NL teams, or excuse me, the NL divisions. Um, And the Cubs, I do think, will have to make some changes during the season, looking at making some additions to either the bullpen, which you mentioned may have some weaknesses, as well as the DH spot. I think they definitely have some room for improvement in the DH role when you look at the Cubs compared to some of those other NL Central teams.
0: Yeah, and one of those teams that could benefit from that is the Pirates. It is still unlikely that they make the postseason, but the Brewers will see the Pirates this week at PNC Park in Pittsburgh, and the series kicks off tonight, Hauser versus Steven Brault. Hauser has some pretty high expectations for this year coming off of a year where he did really shine in the rotation for the first time. Josh Lindblom will be making his Brewers debut the following day, and that one will be interesting to see. I, I am curious to see how Josh Lindblom is able to perform as a member of the Brewers. They did sign him to a three-year contract, so we will see him for a number of years coming up here. Eric Thames, of course, coming from that path from Korea back to the U.S., Lindblom following that similar path back to Milwaukee curious to see how Lindblom does in his Brewers debut and how he's potentially able to build off of that for his next start and going down the road this year.
1: Yeah, Brewers fans definitely excited to see what Lindblom can do as well as see if Hauser can continue his success from 2019. In game three, we see the matchup of the Aces, Brandon Woodruff facing off against Joe Musgrove in the finale.
0: And on the injury front, we have mentioned Eric Lauer numerous times throughout the podcast, so he is no longer a member of the injured list, of course, but he did come off the injured list before yesterday's game against the Cubs, the corresponding move coming by designating Mike Morin for assignment. Morin was a member of the bullpen for all of two days, zero appearances, storied Brewer's career. (laughs) I I do think that he likely won't pitch for the Brewers anymore. I'm not exactly sure if the Brewers will try to keep him as a member of their alternate site in Appleton. It's certainly a possibility, but it remains to be seen, and Eric Lauer is back as a member of the Brewers roster.
1: Quick news around the league. MLB's opening day, big matchup between the Yankees and Nationals, as you may have heard by now, was shortened due to rain. Justin Verlander was out for the year for about five minutes after a Bob Nightingale tweet that had uh, announced to the world that Justin Verlander was done for the year. Uh, Later, that came out just a few minutes later that that was an incorrect, uh, whether incorrect news source or Bob Nightingale at his best. But regardless, Verlander is not out for the year. Rather, he will be out for a few weeks and reevaluated.
0: Yeah, I I think that maybe, see, Bob Nightingale might have hit his lowest point in that he tweeted incorrect news, and was corrected by a tweet by Justin Verlander himself, clearing up misconceptions. I mean, Bob Nightingale has hit a lot of lows in his journalism career. Not exactly sure why he's still employed by USA Today. I don't really think he's that great of a writer. He's really bad at making videos for USA Today. He always looks like he's high when he's recording (laughs) the videos, and he certainly can't report. Because he reports incorrect news and from poor sources all the time. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> Bob, we're really sorry.
1: Sorry, I know you're an active listener here of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. So maybe just hit tap the button to, to skip the uh, 30 seconds that you just witnessed. And we'll get on to the rest of the news. But anyways, Bob Nightingale incorrectly announcing that Justin Verlander out for the year. Again, rather, Verlander is out for a couple of weeks and will be reevaluated. In other news, four Marlins players tested positive for COVID-19. This is the first announcement of a large, relatively large number of players from the same team testing positive. Of course, bad news for the game. Hopefully we don't see this impacting teams going forward, and hopefully we see all these players making strong recoveries as well. Otani made his season debut on the mound for the Angels in Game 3 of the series, um, failing to get an out in the start, as well as giving up three walks and a couple of hits. Definitely a disappointing start of the season for Otani, as he comes to rehab from Tommy John.
0: Before we go, we've got a segment that we introduced a couple of episodes ago, baseball's best. And Peter will ask me for an opinion or an answer on who I think or what I think is the best at a specific area of baseball. So what do you have for me today, Peter?
1: So today's question we have is who is baseball's best owner? Hmm. Obviously a very subjective one. It could be, we could do active, former.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe Frank McCourt.
1: <laughs> for those of you that don't know McCourt the, from the Dodgers, I believe that was maybe what, five, six years ago? Uh, no, it
0: was almost 10 years ago, oh, actually, wow. now that he was forced to sell the team. Also Jeffrey Loria running in the running for horrible baseball owner. Actually, right now the worst might be Bob Nutting in Pittsburgh. Some people say that he doesn't even really care about winning. So, Usually, when you yeah, usually own a you sports, yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. But
1: especially nowadays, I think uh, maybe I don't know, I could be wrong. Obviously, I don't know the owners very well from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, but owners now seem to be in the public eye a little bit more and have a little bit more pressure from fans to basically produce winning franchises. And they understand that it's a business and they need to make money, but at the end of the day, winning is really what matters. Anyways, that I'll get off my. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, of course I'm biased, so easy to say Mark Atanasio, and I do think that Atanasio is definitely one of the better owners around the league, but I do think that actually the Guggenheim group in LA with the Dodgers there, uh, Magic Johnson is a member of that group, is a very good ownership group there. They've shown the willingness to spend money, which I do think is a big aspect of it. They've been very personable. And I do think that another ownership group that has been great is Stuart Sternberg in Tampa Bay. Now, Sternberg has been a little bit controversial in the area because he has shown willingness to move the team potentially to Montreal, whether it's for a full season or for just half of a a season and with the other half coming in Tampa Bay. Of course, if you are from that area, you do not like to see an owner potentially doing that. He did take over for Vince Naimoli in around 2005. And I think that the big difference there was that Sternberg was a lot more personable. Naimoli would just fire people randomly. He would be dissatisfied and, and fire people. Bad fan experience. And Sternberg really turned around that organization, along with Andrew Friedman, some of the other guys in the executives and the manager, Joe Madden, who took over. But I think Sternberg is a terrific owner as well. So I would probably say Sternberg, for the low- market teams, the small market teams, and then the Guggenheim group for the big market team. It's a little bit important to differentiate because there are a few some different objectives as far as being a good owner in those two scenarios. Absolutely.
1: Definitely varies uh, whether you're in a small or large market. Like you said, Dodgers raise completely different organizations, but really the same goal at the end of the day. Revisiting today's trivia question. What Brewers player has the highest single season defensive war? Let's see. Let's test David here. Who you got?
0: Yeah, so I know the highest offensive war is Robin Young in 82, which of course is not the trivia question. (laughs) Defensive war is a little bit harder, but I'm going to go with 2013 Carlos Gomez. That
1: would be correct. Carlos Gomez coming in at number one with 3.6 defensive war. Uh, I don't think you would be able to guess number two. 2008 Jason Kendall Hmm. at number two. Now is this from
0: baseball reference? Yes, this is baseball
1: reference. So I know there could be some variance there. But again, yeah, Gomez number one, 2013. Jason Kendall coming in number two is 08 season with the Brewers, followed by Robin Yount in 81, and then 2019 Lorenzo Kane hmm. in the number four spot.
0: Yeah, I do think that if it were FanGraphs, we'd likely see Jonathan Lucroy probably early early career Jonathan Lucroy with the pitch framing numbers being very high on that list. Kendall was a very good receiver. But he's also later in his career, likely not quite as good, but a very good defender traditionally. And still even by some of the other numbers, like we see here, defensive war from baseball reference. Jason Kendall was a very good defensive player. I think Gomez really had that outstanding peak where he was maybe the best defensive player in baseball. He led actually all of the National League in wins above replacement that year, offense and defense and base running combined.
1: Yeah, Gomez really had, I mean, He was in the MVP voting. He received Mm -hmm. some votes for the MVP, and I still think he was underrated for that season that Gomez had. He was Mm -hmm. very, very good. Uh, Just really a 5 tool player that did it all for the Brewers, and and a very exciting player to watch
0: as well. And just to revisit what we were talking about earlier with Vinny Rotino, looked up the game that we were talking about against the Padres earlier, and that game was September 29th of 2007 vinnie rotino hit a walk-off single scoring ryan braun actually off huh. of joe Th- joe thatcher in the 11th inning against the padres and that was following a comeback off of trevor hoffman to tie the game in the ninth inning
1: that was probably where win jr what came in in the ninth yes yeah. i
0: believe so that was the highest win expectancy swing of the game he hit a triple <laughs> scoring Corey hart to tie the game i was actually the first brewer game that i remember being at I remember sitting on the first level of Miller Park back before first level, lower level tickets cost a fortune and Trevor Hoffman was coming into the game. My dad said to me, yeah, the Brewers really don't have any chance to win this game. Trevor Hoffman is arguably the greatest closer of all time and Hoffman comes in, blows the lead and the Brewers end up winning by none other than Tony Gwynn and Vinny Rotino as the key contributors (laughs) yeah but interesting looking at the box score we do see a Dave Bush start here yes the winning pitcher Brewers legend Mitch Stetter
1: Stetter was he was really good out of the pen was it 15 strikeouts in a row that he had yeah it was something
0: like that that. and just reading the pitchers that the Brewers ran out that day Dave Bush Brian Shouse Seth McClung, Ray King, Francisco Cordero, Chris Sperling, and Mitch Stetter getting the win, pitching a third of an inning in release. I don't think he ever pitched more than a third of an inning right. in a game.
1: That's I guess that's also how you strike out 15 straight yeah. runners. If you were at that game, make sure to you got to tweet at us. Again, that's at Brewers Podcast, also on Instagram as well. Um, but definitely let us know if you were happy to be at that game back in 07. That's good, good Brewers memory right there. So again, to recap, the Brewers losing 2 of 3 in Chicago and the Brewers now head to Pittsburgh to play a three-game series against the Pirates. Thanks for listening to this episode, and go Brewers!
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We'd appreciate if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Make sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at Brewers Podcast.